Let us pray. Our gracious God, we ask that you might open your word to us, that we might hear it, that it might grasp our heart and shape our lives. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The Psalms of Lament are a group of Psalms from the Bible that they're scattered through the book of Psalms. And they are identified by their focus on lament, expressing deep sorrow for, for the various trials that they're going through, either as an individual, as Lincoln spoke about last week, or as a corporate, as the nation, as Psalm 80 does. They ask for God's blessing or intervention. They also are a form of worship and faith, worshipping God even in the midst of of difficulty. Instead of backing away from God during a hard time or a dark night, they are rather facing the pain and worshipping God in the midst of what's happening to them. And I've chosen to consider Psalm 80 this morning. The people of God are being led by the Levitical choir and the music of Asaph. And they cry out to God for some decisive action that will save them from their present plight. Now, weighed down with tears, God has apparently forgotten them, and their enemies cruelly mock them. The nation that was once glorious, it's described as being transplanted from Egypt into Canaan, and where it grew and spread from the, the Mediterranean, and, and the mountains, and burst its boundaries reaching from the Lebanon ranges and the Euphrates River, to the Euphrates rivers. So why does God allow the nations to plunder Israel? Why does he allow enemy nations to crush Israel? The people pray that God will, will rescue the suffering nation, that he will save them and restore them. They pray that he will give back to Israel the strength it once had as a specially chosen people. Or to put it very briefly, they're saying, help. Help. Why? Why is this cry for help? What's this issue that they're facing? The northern kingdom, the ten tribes that had separated from Israel and formed the kingdom of Israel to the north and left Judah with the two tribes and a few others hanging on in the south. The northern kingdom of Israel has been taken captive by the Assyrians. It was the obvious thing that if they took the, the greater northern kingdom and the main trade routes, they were next. Sargon II, the king of Assyria, had crushed Samaria and taken the people into captivity. And it marked the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. That was in 722 BC. In that time, until about 702, Israel, Judah in the south was perpetually under threat. It had fallen under the domination of Assyria and was forced to pay tribute or rather, heavy taxes. And so there's this cry for help. You know, help us. As Sennacherib 
in 705, oh sorry, he ruled from 705 to 681, met opposition from Judah, from the new Judean king, Hezekiah, who refused to pay taxes. Perhaps in a sort of a similar situation, we might say, look, the, the, the nation of Moldova has refused to pay taxes to Russia. It's like a little tiny nation and a great big empire facing them. That's the situation they're in. And when Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem, Hezekiah forsook his rebellion and paid whatever the Assyrians demanded. And Sennacherib took the money, but he didn't back off. And Hezekiah repeatedly, desperately appeals to God for help. And God replied by miraculously destroying a large part of the Assyrian army. There's a famous poem that I learned as an early teenager. Maybe some of the... Maybe Ricky might know it. Maybe my wife might... There's not too many other people who are... Okay, my age. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. And his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like stars in the sea. When the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. That's the picture that was put forward by Lord Byron as he took the Bible story. Somewhere between that event and the fall of Samaria in the north, this psalm was written with the expectation someday, sometime soon, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, this would happen. It happened finally in, with Sennacherib. And then Sennacherib came down and the story goes in the Bible that God heard the plea of Hezekiah and wiped out Sennacherib's army. So it's somewhere in this period that Psalm 80 is written. The northern ten tribes are in captivity and the people in the south are forever looking north in dread. You know, when's it going to happen? What's going to happen tomorrow, next week, the week after? And the hearts of those living in Jerusalem are shaken and they cry for help. Help. Three times the prayer is that God would restore them, that God would look graciously towards them and cause them to be saved. The psalm speaks about the boar from the forest ravaging the nation and all that move in the field feed on them. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. This is the, the picture that the psalmist gives, that the north is wiped out, and every so often the Assyrians would dabble in the south and take it this and do that. It was a perpetual war. Why? Sorry, the psalmist says help. But the psalmist also says why. God, why did you do this? Why do you allow this to happen? O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbours, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Why? Why? 
in the light of all that you've done for us in the past, in the light of all your promises and, and your past actions, why? We're your chosen people, why? We're your chosen and rescued people, why? That's the, the question the psalm raises. Why, God, are you doing this to us? And there's very little information in the psalm as to the why. But there's a very similar passage in Isaiah chapter 5, written in a very approximately the, the same period of time. And in this passage in Isaiah 5, given by God to the prophet Isaiah, we read, Let me sing of my beloved, my love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it. When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled upon. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed with briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And look for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. In contrast to Isaiah 5, Psalm 80 is almost nostalgic about the past. You know, asking God to restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may, that we may be saved. And although there are enemies just at the door, although this is seen at best as God's allowing, there seems to be very little acknowledgement of sin in Psalm 80. And yet, the very history that Psalm 80 refers to, the very history of God's redemptive grace, rescuing Israel from Egypt and taking it to the promised land and making it a nation. That history that's referred to in such glowing terms. God's covenantal faithfulness and his grace and power is, according to Exodus and Chronicles, also a history of unfaithfulness and sin. While the psalm is focused on what God has done, what God has promised, and there's a silence about what Judah or Israel has done. And perhaps, perhaps the silence acknowledges that what God has done despite, and asks that God might work despite despite their failure despite their sin God help us 
At the very heart of the psalm is a, is a threefold request. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And this request is based on a promise, a, a, a prayer, a blessing given to Aaron way back at the beginning of the book, the books of the Pentateuch. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Look upon us, he says in verse 8 and 11. Look upon us with grace and mercy and faithfulness. Make us what we once were. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted. You cleared the ground for it. You took, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard to this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son who you made strong for yourself. Make us what we once were and more. It's this request. You know, take us back. Make us great once more. Make us what we were and more. And it brings a promise. God, if you act, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. But how does this cry for God to act speak to us? What are we to do in times of spiritual declension? Because that's what the nation was in. Where are we to turn when the world turns against us and God seems indifferent? For that's what it seems like in the psalm. The, the whole weight of the Assyrian Empire was just hanging over them. And God seemed indifferent. What does it mean for us to say, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. What is the great redemptive act in history that we are to turn to as a restoration point? The people of Judah, the, the song that Asaph rang, sang speaks of going back to what they once were, of God's blessing upon them. But what is the restoration point for us? What do we look back to? Or forward to. And it must not be some nostalgic hankering for the past. For just as Israel's history was full of failure and sin, the church is no different. It too has a history of failure and sin. But there is a turning point in history. There is a turning point that changed everything. A turning point historically, socially, spiritually. A turning point that we are to focus upon. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. 
God's redemption point that changed everything. And it's to this point, this point in history, that the apostles continually turn, particularly to his death and resurrection. Read any of the epistles. Because Christ has died in our place, the the righteous for the unrighteous, and rose confirming a, a full and free redemption. Live like this. This is what the apostles say. It's what Christ has done. Look to Christ. See what God has done. And that's to be our restoration point. Not some marvelous green on the other side of the fence way back when. Not some sort of nostalgic memory, but to look to what Christ has done. And so we read those words in Romans chapter 8. And Paul writes to the church and says, this is what you have. This is what you are. This is what Christ has done for you. Pull your socks up. Think about what Christ has done. Stop panicking. Stop being fearful for yourself. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The New Testament points us back time and time again to what Christ has done. And at the same time, it also points us forward to say this is the reality. Because Christ has done this, then this is guaranteed. But in the midst of history, as it was in the history of Israel, there is still the reality of sin, of the church's failure and God's judgment. So we aren't to look at the church with rosy, glass-coloured spectacles, rather to face reality. And and the reminder is, the very chilling reminder in, in Revelation, is that God keeps his eye on the church and he expects the church to behave in ways that honour him. And so, John the Apostle has given this message, and he in turn is told to send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And as you read through the message, from Revelation 2 into 4, we move from the disclosure of the church's sins to the holiness of God and we understand something of the heart of God as he sees the failure of his people 
And as we consider that, we need to consider our own lives and the church we know and the church we see in the, in the world around us and our cry of anguish and sorrow over the church, wondering how God would allow his vine to be trampled, crushed underfoot by persecution, torn apart from within by greed and sexual sin and heresy, with a desire for physical blessing rather than identifying with Christ, being nice rather than being redeemed. And as we speak to God about the church, the church in the East and the West, in Africa, Asia and the Americas, as we speak to God about the church, we need to speak to God about ourselves. Why has this happened? Why is the church being crushed underfoot by persecution? Why do we, as it were, continually look over our shoulder all the time? The church torn apart from within by greed, sexual sin and heresy. Why? Well, the Bible talk, tells us two things. It talks about the world's resistance to the gospel. Those around us laugh. They want to chuck aside the, the limits that God has set. But he who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He has the final say. We're also told, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or again, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We look at the church around us and perhaps we despair. Perhaps we cry out as the psalmist said, why? Or perhaps we cry out, restore us, O Lord. But the Bible talks about the world's resistance to the gospel. But the Bible also talks about the sin, both corporate and individual, within the church and calls us to repentance. And it says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Psalm 80 says, Why have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we shall call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
instead of whinging about our predicament or about the church around us or standing back in despair, we are to pray, turn again, O Lord of hosts. Look from heaven and see. Have regard. Restore us, O Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We are to faithfully live and worship our great God and Saviour. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we shall call upon your name. The great blessing we often say at baptisms and other events in the church, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.